Okay, you ready to switch gears? All right, grab your outlines, get your Bibles. If you've got them, start flipping over to Ephesians 5. If you want, today we are wrapping up uh, our Relationology series. Uh, One of the things that this will not be startling news to anybody in this room, but our culture has this crazy commitment to achievement and success and competition, right? Is that big news to anybody this morning? No, I didn't think so. Um, So part of the deal as we do that, we're always looking for an edge because our culture celebrates winners. I mean, second place is really just the first loser, right? Amen? I mean, can I get an amen to that? I mean, let's be real honest. I mean, that's what we say. And so from the time we're kids, we start grading and categorizing Right? And we start shaping, you know, whole tutoring centers. You've got to be successful. School matters and the bar gets raised. Every year it seems higher. I'm doing homework with like my fourth grader. I can't even help him with math anymore. I'm like, this is crazy. I don't think I graduated from high school with what you're doing now. It's amazing. My kids are playing baseball. And it's like, it's not just you go to a couple practices a week and play a game or two and have some fun. Like, if you want to be successful in baseball, you've got to have a pitching coach. You gotta have a batting coach. You gotta have a fielding coach. You gotta have a catching coach if you want. It's cr- you could be out five, six nights a week as a third grader to play baseball, right? It's amazing. But we're always looking for the competitive edge, and the world helps us. Greatness is not given. When no one is looking. 40 years of hydration science in every bottle. So you can take what's yours. Ah, greatness is taken, right? So here's the deal. (laughs) Clearly the implications are this of this ad. If I drink this every day through the summer. I'm going to play quarterback in the NFL. I'm going to the combine. Anybody want to go with me? Like, let's go. Drink some Gatorade and make it happen. But that, I mean, it's all around us, whether it's Gatorade or We're just looking for the edge. And clearly they're saying because of what's inside of you, it makes you better. It gives you an advantage. You're bigger, stronger, faster, smarter. And for some, we may think that it's actually easier to become a quarterback in the NFL than to be successful at relationships. And so this morning, it's great because we're looking for the relational edge, sort of the relational Gatorade of life to help make us achieve and be successful. But it always seems so elusive. I mean, as we've been going through the series, we we know that we're designed and created for relationship with God first and foremost, but then also with each other. We know that's a great gift, but we know and we've learned that relationships while the source of our greatest joy are often the source of some of our greatest pain as we move through life. And sometimes it may start to feel like we're training, like we're dragging pounds of weight 50 yards down a field, like we're running on a treadmill, like we're sweating and getting nowhere in our relationships. And so what fuels us? What is going to give us the advantage and the power to get through life? Last week, Jeff looked at Ephesians 5.21 with you guys, right, about submitting to one another. And that's so countercultural. I mean, it's an insane thought if you think about it. We're so committed to achieving and competing to actually just submit. We're not taught to submit. 
right? We're sought to never surrender, never say die, never give up, fight to the finish. That's what we do because it puts the story in our hands. So what would it look like to actually live that verse out profoundly? Because I believe that's the key. You see, the context to the previous passage of verse 521 kind of shows us not only how this is possible, but why we'd even want to as we move through life. And so if you're here for the first time in church, welcome. I mean, this is a big day for you if you're here, right? You got a church verse, you may be getting a new lead pastor, and now you're going to get the total key to life and relationships. If you've been part of this story, right, if you've been following Jesus for a long time, uh, as I've been studying and looking at my own life this week in the context of this, I actually believe that the key to great relationships is what we're going to talk about this morning. So turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to look at verse 15 through 20. It says, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He starts, Paul here starts by contrasting some things and giving us some warnings, right? He says, be very careful. Live wisely. Don't be unwise. Make the most of the opportunities you're given. And we've looked at that before as a church. We know the most of the opportunities. It's not like these random things that come along in our life. They're not small things. They're these God-given kairos opportunities. The opportunities that we have to live out the character that God has placed inside of us. To live out the love and the grace and the forgiveness and the freedom and the mercy. All of these things. To live that story out profoundly. And he contrasts that with the days are evil. And what he's saying is you're given these opportunities but it's going to be really difficult to live them out. Because the world you live in is evil. And there's a gravity that just goes towards brokenness and hatred and separation. And then he says, don't be foolish. Understand what God's will is. And finally, don't get drunk on wine. Because that leads to debauchery. And then he hits this turning point in verse 18. He says, instead of all of those things, instead, be filled with the Spirit. He's implying that there's something in you that you both seek and are recipients of, and that is the Spirit. You see, we know that as we look through the Bible, and and Paul in all of his letters is consistently contrasting and aiming us at the life in the Spirit and contrasting that to the life of the flesh or the life in the world. And the life of the Spirit is categorized a few ways in the Bible. The first one is... Uh, We talk about being baptized in the Spirit in 1 Corinthians, right? So when you say yes to Jesus, when you say yes, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that he paid a price for my sin that I can't pay. And my brokenness and my weakness, he covers it all. And I believe that in him, I have an eternity that's promised with him and relationship and heaven and all that that goes with it. And the 1 Corinthians talked about it as being baptized in the Spirit. So when you say yes to Jesus, you're baptized in the Spirit. And there's this oneness, this unity, this family of God thing 
that starts taking place. Where all the walls and all the things that separate people sort of just disappear. And everybody's one and united in Jesus, baptized in the Spirit. There's another way the Bible talks about the Spirit, right? Jesus, before he goes away to the cross to be crucified, he's talking to his disciples. And they're kind of distraught, going, wait, you're leaving? And he says, no, 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 it's okay. It's better that I go because I'm leaving you a gift. And that gift is the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Okay? And this Spirit is what? It's in you. It's the gift he gives you when you say yes to him. A gift that leads and that guides and that comforts and brings peace that passes understanding in the most desperate moments of life. So we have this baptized in the Spirit thing. We have this gift of the Spirit that we're given. But then there's a different thing he's calling us to, which is the, instead, be filled with the Spirit. And that's sort of the relational Gatorade that we're looking for here. You see, all of these promises happen in Jesus. And so what he's saying is, in Jesus, you've received everything you need. You just aren't living in all you've received. Let me say it this way. It's like having a billion dollars in the bank and you don't have a debit card. Right? Or you can't write checks, if it makes more sense to some of you. I remember checks. I'm so glad I don't have to balance checkbooks anymore. But listen, a billion dollars. If you have a billion dollars in the bank, do you need anything more? Please say no. I mean, come on, let's be real honest, people. We have a different problem if you're going to say yeah. If you have a billion dollars in the bank, do you need anything more? No. You've got everything you need. You just can't access it. You're not receiving the gift that you've been given. There's no more to be given. There's just more to be received. So Paul's talking about this filling of the Spirit. And if you take instead, be filled with the Spirit and translate it literally into English, it looks like this. Be being kept filled. I put that on your outline this week and like every editor came back and said, this is bad English. You can't put that on an outline. And I'm like, that's what the Bible's saying. Be being kept filled. So you see that it's this present command. It's a continuous action. It's saying, go on being filled. Not once, but a continuous invitation and privilege to receive and be renewed by the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I like that it's a passive command. There's nothing you can do to attain it. All you can do is receive it. There's nothing you can do to work for it. You can't earn it. You can't achieve it on your own. There's nothing you can do but simply receive it. You can't fill yourself. And in all of this, there's this implied leakiness, right? Because who's Paul writing this to? We know this is the book of Ephesians. Right? So this is the church in Ephesus. This is a body of believers that Paul's writing this to. And they're leaking. Clearly. You leak. Turn to your neighbor and say, you leak. And you're leaking on me. (laughs) Even more awkward. Now listen. Why does this leakiness exist? Well, there's a couple reasons. Okay, let's go back to here. This is Genesis 1 and 2, this page in my Bible. And what happens here? You guys know what happens here. All of creation takes place right here, right? God turns nothing into something. He speaks the sun and the moon and the night and the day. 
and the mountains and the valleys and every tree and every animal and everything that ever existed into being. He speaks it all into existence right here. Even man and woman, right? He creates it and he says, this is all very good. And everything's living together in relationship, in harmony with God and with each other. And it's beautiful. And there's no leaks. Turn the page. Chapter 3 for me just says the fall. You can just put, it starts leaking. Because what happens? Adam and Eve decide, I can do this better. We can do this better. We don't need to listen to God and to the one thing that he said we couldn't do. Certainly we know better. And what that did is invite leakiness into their lives. And not only their life, the rest of this book, people are born into leakiness and brokenness and weakness, including you and including me. And so the rest of this book is dedicated to stopping those leaks and to the filling up again of what God originally created and intended for us in relationship. So we leak for a couple reasons. Number one, it's not your fault. You're just born into it. And that's the way it is. There's a gravity that exists to our brokenness and our weakness that we can't avoid. There's another reason we leak, and that is because we're making the most of every opportunity. Those kairos moments that God gives us to exhibit and to put on display his spirit in our life. So when we put on display love and joy and peace and kindness and forgiveness and generosity, that takes something from us, doesn't it? Doesn't those, those things take something from you, right? Is it real easy to love and be forgiving and kind and merciful and generous? No. That's tough. Is it easy for you? Because it's not easy for me and I'm a pastor guy. So it's like, come on. It takes something out of us when we do that. And so we leak out of our humanity and brokenness and we leak and something then has to fill us, right? What does that look like in our life? So let's just pause here for a moment. I'll illustrate it this way. It may not be good, but I'll try. What was it, a week ago was the Super Bowl? Was that just last Sunday? Holy mackerel, that feels like a month ago to me. Okay, so last Sunday is Super Bowl and... um, so we invite my parents who live not too far away, about 40 minutes away, to come down and watch the Super Bowl with us. So they're coming over, and they show up, and I think my parents are thinking, oh, this will just be Kyle and Holiday and the kids, and it'll be a great little family time. So if you know anything about me and about my neighborhood and about the way my wife has gently led me and all of us into being there, it's never just me and Holiday and the kids in a nice small gathering. I mean, every day at 3 o'clock, garage doors go up, and there's kids everywhere, and we go through sidewalk chalk like it's running out of business. I mean, it's crazy. I go my entire driveway, and sometimes my house is colored with stuff, and there's kids playing basketball and football and baseball out front. There's kids in the pool and playing in the park behind the back, and the doors are all open, and they're just running through constantly. I mean, it's crazy. And so my parents get down, and they're like, oh, this is great. This is awesome. We thought we were just going to be you. And it's like, no. Like, and we're staying for the game, and most of these kids just stay. So we have to go to the store, and we get some more food, and we sit down, and we're cooking more burgers, and we're drinking more drinks, and we're eating more stuff. And it's crazy. It's chaos. But it's beautiful because I've told you the story of these kids and these families that we're getting to know as a result of it is pretty great. We get to be a safe place for them. They're developing relationships with our kids that are honest and kind. 
We get to, to see our kids become servants as they love and serve the neighbors and share things. We get to talk to the parents about their stories of brokenness and marriage challenges and being single parents and all of that. So the kids at our house that day, there was a few. There was uh, a couple kids whose dad was watching the party with some friends and had already been drunk and passed out. There were some other kids that had come whose they didn't even know if their parents knew they were gone out of the house. So we're living in what? These Kairos moments, this opportunity to love and serve and be kind and generous to the people that God has placed us in relationship with. And it's beautiful and it's exhausting, right? So what happens is we get to later that night when everybody's gone and the game's over and everything's out, and then you see just the humanity start leaking out of us. Because then it's just us and the family, and I'm dead, and I just want to sit on TV and watch the highlights that I never really got to see because there were so many people that went through. And Holiday's like, are you going to help me with the kids? And I'm like, I am helping. I'm just taking a break. You know, I'll take care of it. Boys, brush your teeth. Yeah, I'm yelling commands from, you know, Command Central, like Star Trek or something on the couch. You know, and finally she's walking by and looking at me, and I'm looking at her. And I'm like, don't look. If you want to say something, say something. Don't look at me like that, you know. You guys have done this. So, you know, and then, so then the, the leakiness of the humanity starts to show up and the brokenness. And all of a sudden, this wonderful Kairos opportunity, Dad, hey, that was great. We're so glad you guys are all here, has turned into angry ogre dad yelling at kids to go to bed and stuff. We leak. We leak. That's just one day. How's that? <laughs> Don't y'all want to live in my house? That's just one day, right? But that's what our days look like. We're given these beautiful moments to put on display the spirit living in us, but it takes something out of us. And then also, we put on display the humanity that we're just born into, that we have to fight against. So the question is, what's filling you up? So Paul, and the Bible in general, is always contrasting these two ways of life. A way of being filled with the spirit, or being filled with the flesh. And he talks about life in the spirit versus life in the flesh. Because the bottom line is when our relationships start to struggle, it's going to be a result of which one? The flesh. It is not going to be a result of the spirit, right? We just talked about all the beauty of what the spirit was. Oneness, you know, unity, family, comfort, patience. That's all the spirit in us. So when relationships struggle, it's about the flesh, and we looked at this earlier in this Relationology series. Might have even been week one. Look at this out of Galatians chapter 5, verse 17. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other, so that you're not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, just the long list, and I love what it says. These are obvious. Nobody had to tell me or even tell my kids that night, Dad, you're living in the flesh. You're an old, angry ogre guy who's more worried about yourself than you are about us at this moment. It's obvious when we're living in the flesh, Right? And we see examples of this flesh stuff all over. McGuire talked about it one week, you know, when he talked about the number one relationship killer, which is words. And he said, we use words to devour each other instead of build one another up. We place blame. Lots of things in the flesh. Addictions. Anything we're using to gratify ourselves at all costs is about living in the flesh. 
And so Paul here in Ephesians 5.18, he's using one example of that fleshly world when he says, don't get drunk with wine because it will lead to a life of debauchery. And he's talking about an extreme indulgence here and how that leads to something horrible in our life. He's using wine and drunkenness as an example. But it could be anything that we overuse or invest ourselves in to fill or satisfy what only the supernatural power and presence of the Holy Spirit wants to do in us. So let me say it a different way. I grew up in a church context where like if somebody took like an eyedropper and placed a drop of wine in my mouth, I was going to hell. I'm, I'm serious. Like I had that feel. Like that's actually what I, I thought I was supposed to believe. That is not, and this is a passage they would use to tell me that. That is not what Paul's saying. What he's saying is, it's not the presence of something in your life. It's filling to the point of control. So in other words, if that wine overtakes you to the point of control, and it's controlling you and you're not controlling it, you're living in the flesh. There's other things like that in our life that we see all the time that we don't talk about quite as much. So let's talk about them. Shopping and spending. Things we have, we all have to shop. We all have to spend. God blesses us with stuff. It's part of the beauty of life. But if shopping and spending gets out of control in your life to a point of it's controlling you, you're living in the flesh. Eating. We all have to eat. God wants us all to eat. He's blessed us, right? Remember the garden? It was all created for us. That's all part of it. Steward it. But if eating controls you to either extreme, it's controlling you, and it's filling you, and you're looking to self-gratify yourself in a way that's not healthy, and the spirit isn't in you. Family, kids, some of the most profound blessings from God. But yet, if they become the object of our primary affection, and if they are the ones that are filling our life, right, it actually turns into something that's really dangerous in our life. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying a life of flesh theme is about a hyper focus upon yourself to where you and your gratification and your happiness becomes the primary um, goal. And he's saying that's not the way it works. And we see this happen all the time. Relationships, right? From the moment we start dating and stuff, the greatest lie we ever tell somebody else is, it's not you, it's me. Say it. It's not. It's. Anybody ever heard that? Come on. Has anybody ever heard that? How painful is that? Because we know they're lying. Has anybody ever said that? No, I've said it. I'm that guy. It's horrible. What if the incredible irony of that statement is that it's actually true? What if it really isn't you it really is me. You see, primary relationships like that in our life, whether it's a boyfriend or a girlfriend, particularly a spouse, but close friends, family members, sometimes even our coworkers or our boss, they become magnifying glasses for our lives. And so the little cracks in our character or in the integrity of our foundation of who we are get incredibly amplified and magnified. 
right? Has anybody ever said or thought even, man, I feel like I give the worst of me to the people closest to me? Anyone? Yeah, that's why. Because if you really want to know who someone is, if you really want to know who I am, ask my wife, ask my kids. That's why I'm pretty willing to share with you the stories of my brokenness because then you're not going to find out anything that's, you know, worse. She'll go, yeah, he's everything he talks to you about. It's just true. Ask the people closest to you. Invite people to ask for that kind of accountability. They amplify the issues. They're our most honest self. So the question really becomes then, are we willing? Are we willing to say, it's not you, it's me, and mean it? And to deal honestly with the selfishness that exists in our life. Because we all have issues. And we want to make our issues the issue. But that's not really the issue. What's the issue? Is our selfishness. Let me say it this way. Um, My brokenness and my weakness isn't the biggest obstacle in my marriage. It's my selfishness. Here's how it gets played out subtly. Uh, I, like you guys, I go through weeks. I exert a ton of relational energy, as you can imagine, because of what I do as a pastor. So relational and spiritual energy and emotional energy is what I do all the time. Physical energy, I usually have a ton of. So I'll get home and I'll have to go on a run or play basketball with the kids or play catch. I'm good for that stuff when I get home. So when we want to do something physically, it's like, great, let's go. Let's go hike. Let's go walk. Let's go bike. But when my wife comes to me, And she wants to talk to me, of all things. And she'll say, like, i got to tell you about my day. Like, you won't believe. And she just wants to share relational weight or energy emotionally. I have a tendency to go, ah, honey, I'm so sorry. I can't even listen to that right now. I just don't have any space. You're going to have to, like, call one of your girlfriends or something and work it out. (laughs) I know. Are you kidding me? I've said that to my wife. I'm a pastor. It's crazy. And I actually had convinced myself for a season that that was okay. Because that's what, and I actually meet with these two guys. I've met with them every Wednesday morning. Just great friends for like 10 years. Just to go, hey, are we becoming who God wants us to be? So I'm telling them the story. I'm like, man, last night, holiday comes. I'm exhausted. I got all this stuff going on. And she wants to talk to me. I know it sounds crazy when I say it. And they're like, so what'd you do? I'm like, I told her I just couldn't. I'm like, and you're okay with that? Like, you think that's okay? And I'm like, it's not. <laughs> and here's the beautiful thing is, is they, they didn't lecture me. They didn't do a bunch of stuff. But they're like, I think you should probably just pray about it and listen to God. And what would Jesus do kind of works in this moment. But what I'm really doing in that moment is I'm making my brokenness and my weakness and my own self-gratification, the issue. And I'm saying this issue is bigger than whatever issue you're about ready to talk to me about and give me. If only you understood and knew and cared about me. And what am I doing? I'm becoming the focus. And I'm saying it's about me here. It's not about you. So, And I'm filling my life. And I'm buying that lie of selfishness. The other place we can swing and the other place I used to swing a ton and the other place that guys are really great at swinging in particular is fixing. We can fix things. So the other place I'll go is, oh, I want to talk to you about my day. Great, what's going on? 
well, this and that. And I, I said, here's what you should do. Do this. You could, you should, you said that? No, 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 you should have said, and what you might, anyone ever been should on? <laughs> right? We think that we have the power to fix and change and transform the people around us. Transformation, the power to actually bring about real, lasting, spiritual life change in a person does not come through us. It only comes through the power of Jesus. Only Jesus can change people. That's it. That's it. But we start to think that somehow we're the answer and we start to buy the lie that we should be the answer for our friends or for our spouses or for whatever. Stop it. You're not the answer. Turn to the person next to you and say, you're not the answer. So here's the deal. If we are the problem, we can't possibly be the solution. And the Bible speaks to this as well. Look at Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 8. In your outline, it's in the NIV, but I'm going to read it to you, and it'll be on the screens in the message. And look at the clarity this brings. Those who think they can do it on their own end up obsessed with measuring their own moral muscle, but never get around to exercising it in real life. Those who trust God's action in them find that God's spirit is in them, living and breathing God. Obsession with self in these matters is a dead end. Attention to God leads us out into the open, into a spacious, free life. Focusing on the self is the opposite of focusing on God. Anyone completely absorbed in self ignores God, ends up thinking more about self than God. That person ignores who God is and what he is doing. And God isn't pleased at being ignored. The greatest hindrance to healthy, thriving relationships, according to Romans 8, is obsession with self. Therefore, the key to greatness, the spiritual, relational Gatorade in our relationships is to deal ruthlessly with our own selfishness. To honestly and humbly move through life and say, it's not you, it's me. To look honestly at what's happening around us relationally and to stop looking for others or for something in this world to fill and to power our lives in a way that only the Holy Spirit can. And you know what's beautiful about this? This whole Romans 8 thing? While God isn't pleased at being ignored, he never walks away. God, who has all the right to say, it's not me, it's you, never does, ever. He never leaves. He never forsakes. He never abandons. He's always ready and available and willing to walk with you. He never gives lame breakup speeches or excuses. God is never the problem. He is always the solution. So what are you filling your life with? Ephesians 5.18, instead, be filled with the Spirit. 
Ephesians 2, 22, and in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Ephesians 3, 16, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. It's all about the Holy Spirit in us. And what do lives and relationships that are marked by this filling of the Spirit and the interaction with the supernatural power of God really look like? Just read on through Ephesians and it tells us. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And then in 19, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks to God, the Father for everything, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. A life characterized by fullness, a life that is constantly being filled by the Holy Spirit, this is what it looks like. And what does that mean, right? Because there's some things you kind of go, what does that mean to speak psalms and hymns and spiritual songs? Well, the psalms, as you look at them, really are just these honest outpourings about where people are in life affirmations and encouragement of who God is and who we are in light of that. And he's saying, speak these to each other. Remind one another of this. Hymns, right, carry this incredible weight and doctrine and truth about who God is. And he's saying, listen, as you go through this world, remember the days are evil and it's going to try and steal and rob your identity. And so you need to remind each other about who you are, that you are sons and daughters of a king. That you have been redeemed and created and bought through the life of Jesus for a purpose. And so when you see people close to you start buying lies about who they are, you have to stop them and say, that's not true. That's not true. Speak psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and in everything give thanks. Think about lives that are marked by gratitude. Think about the people around you that are quick to say thank you. Try and say thank you without smiling. There's a contentment that exists in gratitude. These are all, this is what, this is the life we want. These are the relationships we want. And he's saying it's all right here. Let me fill you with my spirit. Just receive it. So how then today does this become real in our lives? The first thing you have to do is simply ask. You have to ask Jesus and the Holy Spirit to reveal to you the places where your own selfishness has taken control. Where it's wounded other people. And part of this, there's a beauty because there's some things instantly that all of us will go to. But there's a hiddenness to selfishness. And so it's really inviting Jesus to shine his light into all the corners of your life. And to even ask him to reveal the things that are hidden. The second thing is you have to release. You have to put to death the old appetites. You have to put to death the old things that you would run to to fill your life. Because you see, fed a steady diet of anything, it starts to feel normal and our bodies adjust to it. And so there's things in our life that become normal that aren't. There's things in our life we're looking to fill us that can't and won't. And so when you ask God to reveal, he will reveal these things. And you have to release them and put them to death so they never come back. Third thing is you've got to acquire 
a discipline to establish a new appetite for the Holy Spirit. What's a discipline? A discipline is something that is in your power to enable you to do what you can't do on your own. So a discipline does not create a new self. A discipline in and of itself does not fill you. A discipline creates an environment for your new self to be created. A discipline creates an environment for you to be filled by the Spirit. It's an opportunity to create an environment for you to host Jesus in your life in a different way. And finally, some of you may have to ask, um, who do you need to say it's not you, but it's me? With a humble heart and a humble posture. And to really own that truth. And to release some people that you've been holding hostage. To release yourself in a way that you've been holding hostage. Where you've been making your own selfishness the issue. And you say, it's not you, it's me. Even if they never address their issues. Some of you may need to say, it's not you, it's me, to Jesus. You see, some of you might have been blaming God. Some of you maybe have never even considered this story. Some of you may have walked in here today thinking that you needed to earn or be good enough or to try and work your way towards a loving God. And you need to say, it's not you, God, it's me. Some of you may just need to receive Jesus. I'm going to ask if you would just to close your eyes as we close and We're just going to work back through these things and consider them for a moment. I believe that God is speaking to you as his kids. I believe that he's inviting to you into the fullness of relationship with him and with each other. And so I'm going to invite you as I go back through these and as you're listening to God, today I just want to pray for you and I'm going to invite you to do something courageous. I'm going to ask you as we go through these things just to stand so I can pray for you. And we'll all be standing together. But the first thing I want to do is just pause. And I want you just to ask God. These are a courageous thing to do. God, reveal the contents of my own heart. Where are the places I'm living and operating in selfishness? Either intentionally or even unintentionally. I believe God's talking to some of you guys about releasing and putting to death some of the old appetites you've shaped your life around. Some of the things that you've used to fill the space that only the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit can. And so I'm going to invite you, if you would, in this moment, if that's you, if you would just stand quietly right where you're at so I can pray for you. Some of you today have um, been uh, convicted or compelled by the idea of acquiring a new discipline, of creating an environment in your life for the Holy Spirit to, to fill it. And so if God's been talking to you about acquiring a new discipline to establish a new appetite for His Spirit to fill you, would you just stand wherever you're at?
finally, for, for some of us, um, we just need to say to Jesus, it's not you, it's me. And if that's you, if you want to invite Jesus into your life in a new and profound way and receive the gift and the filling of the Holy Spirit, would you just stand wherever you're at? Let me pray. Father, we are overwhelmed by your story and by who you are, by your character, by your love, by the fact that you never leave and you never abandon and you never forsake. Thank you that the way that you speak truth into our hearts and lives in a way that is profound to our souls, but incredibly gentle in the way that you live. And God, specifically as a community today, I and we pray for these people that have stood. God, we believe that the Holy Spirit, even in this moment, is speaking to them and filling them with truth and with comfort and with peace. Giving them the courage to shape their lives and their appetite uh, around hosting you in a new and different way. That they would have the courage and the relentlessness to put to death the things in their life that they've been holding on to and that they would turn loose and release of those and allow you to fill them in a fresh way. And God, for those that have chosen to say yes to you and to your spirit for the first time, I pray that you would overwhelm them with your love and with your kindness. And we pray this in the power of your name, Jesus. Amen. Would you all